This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel and a new Nanos poll, as you heard in Bob's News, finds only half of Canadians believe the Prime Minister when he says that everyone who wants a vaccine will get one by September. It's a promise he keeps repeating with every bit of bad news about our slow, confused and interrupted vaccine rollout, making it all the more likely that voters will remember if he cannot keep that promise. On the provincial level, more bad news on long-term care. We marked a a grim milestone last week, surpassing the number of long-term care deaths that we suffered in the first wave. There's new numbers. There are new numbers on the fact that a a lot of nursing home residents uh, don't even get the opportunity to be treated in hospital when they get very severely ill. And we're seeing distressing reports about queue jumping in the long-term care rollout. Now, uh, this, as the government is slowly reopening the economy, and while businesses are cheering that, there are public health officials, including the top ones, saying, well, we are doing this too soon and it could lead to disaster. And not to forget, south of the border, Donald Trump's impeachment hearing is beginning. So let me give out the numbers. We would like to hear from you, 416 416- Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty and now I'd like to welcome our panel: Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village; Charles Souza, former Minister of Finance for Ontario and Liberal MPP; and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi. Good afternoon. Okay, let's start with you, Charles. Uh, uh, what do you make of the Prime Minister keeping, he keeps repeating this promise. Uh, we've had the economist, among others, say it's not going to happen that quickly. It'll be the middle of 2022. Is he putting himself in uh, more political peril than he already is? Are you talking about the delivery of the vaccine? Yes, um, he's consistent, that's for sure, and um, there have been problems, which are obvious, uh, but I'm being assured by the people I speak to that uh, supply is volatile, but it's being corrected, and they're confident that they'll have, uh, they'll have their quota as necessary by the quarter. I mean, they've been saying all along that the early stages would be a bit slow, but by, you know, by the, by the, by the balance of Q2, they'll be at, at, uh, at where they need to be. So they'll ramp up sharply in April. Question is, are we comfortable with that, given you know the anxiety that people are feeling with regards to the vaccine and the ability for us to have it to, you know, inoculated to the individuals that need it? But he hasn't changed his tune, and he's you know it's obvious that we're all concerned about supply shortages and, and the work that's being done uh, that's not being done, I guess, at this point. Well, uh, you know, it became clear last week that the government was scrambling because they just did not take into account the possibility that a vaccine would be approved by the end of last year. And John, again, is is he taking a risk? I mean, according to the calculation from The Economist, we would have to administer hundreds of thousands of doses a day to meet that September target. So is he just putting a a target on his head if we don't meet it. Well, I think this whole vaccine rollout and how it's going to be perceived as a huge target on his head and, and whether or not we're going to go into an election, um, you know, after the budget or not, sort of within the next couple of months, or if it's going to be prolonged beyond that into the fall. Uh, and I think it, it started off, you know, the prime minister had a very bad 
um, messaging from the very outset when it came to vaccines. And we saw that, you know, early on and in, in sort of in December when we started focusing on, on vaccines uh, in that, you know, we had a bunch of ministers, you know, talking and not sure what states they were going to talk, you know, which states were going to happen with respect to vaccines and, and injections and rollouts. And then, you know, he came up with an announcement saying that we're going to get vaccines and we're all going to get, you know, you know, this is all going to, people are going to get vaccinated as soon as we can in 2021. Well, what happened was people's anxiety uh, it was the hope for, for vaccines in 2021 was so great and the expectations were so high that obviously if you didn't meet them as we didn't, then obviously people are going to be disappointed. So I'm not surprised to see the poll. In fact, I would have thought maybe, you know, higher number of people don't believe this government because I think that they're getting tired of words and they want to see action. And no matter what the prime minister says and all of this confusion with respect to the Pfizer and the various brands of, of, of vaccines and how they're supposed to be sort of managed and stored and all that is confusing for a lot of folks because all they think about is, okay, are the healthcare workers and are the long-term care residents being vaccinated first and foremost? I think everybody wants that to happen. And when they're not seeing that and we're seeing the prime minister blaming the provinces initially, uh, and then the province is basically saying, well, we, we don't have any more, we, we don't have any more vaccines. Back to you now, Prime Minister. Then it gets confusing. So it, it, it is, I think people are now sort of tired of the words. They want to see action. And I'm, I'm hopeful and, and looking forward to all of us are that, that, you know, the new shipment of Pfizer vaccines and Moderna and others uh, are going to come back and we can get back into uh, putting jabs in arms, which is what everybody wants. Karen, is he putting himself in uh, more political jeopardy? And and I just want to point out, uh, it's not just his messaging that was bad. It was the actual rollout, the actual procurement. And the last I looked, which was yesterday afternoon, Canada is 37th in the world in the vaccine rollout. We are behind small countries or not so small countries like Serbia, Cyprus, Chile. Uh, I mean, and uh, I, just as a private citizen, I would never have thought of myself as a Canadian as falling behind places like that. Karen? Yeah, and I I think that, um, you know, to the points that have been raised, the public is not going to believe that they're going to receive their their job by September unless there's a, a, a clearly articulated plan. And I get that the provinces and the federal government need to work together. But, you know, as here I am as a, you know, as a citizen waiting for my shot, I don't have any idea when I'm even eligible to get it. I don't know where I am on the list. I don't know how I'm going to get it. I don't know where I'm going to get it. Do I go to my doctor? Do I go to the pharmacist? Do I go to the convention center? And so part of restoring the public trust is actually being able to articulate, okay, here's, here's who's first. You know, everyone over 65. Once they get inoculated, then we're going to go to the, you know, 20 to 40s because that's the group that is, you know, working in the front line or, or however they are going to. It's by age. It's it's by age. But we've seen that getting diverted with all kinds of excuses. 100%. So even when they said we're going to vaccinate everyone in long-term care, it took too long. And then, yes. you know, then Sally still from, not you know, finished. HR in the hospital got the shot because they didn't have enough people showing up to get there at their appointment. Well, you know, it, 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 the news on that might be worse. You know, there, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not accusing anybody, but, uh, next in the show, we're going to be talking to somebody from the union, Leuna and a nurse there alleges that they deliberately diverted doses for personal use of people on the board, their families, that kind of thing. And they, they are grieving that. So that's just another thing. I, I've been talking to the head of the nurses union here who blames the hospitals for diversion of doses. So everybody is kind of blaming each other. And again, you know, um, uh, Charles, uh, I, you talk to people and you're optimistic, but again, the number is, 37th in the world. Yeah, it's distressing, isn't it? And, um, you know, there's been plenty of negotiations. There's been a lot of, and I think it was Randy Hillard, you know, mentioned there's a lot of blame to go around. The facts are Canada doesn't produce vaccines. Now they're trying, uh, as we know, but Big Pharma was exiting some time ago and we're at the mercy of, of the supplies from other countries and other parts of the world. And I know the minister has been working hard to make those negotiations. She secured the supply that she had to do. Prime ministers make commitments to have it all available to us uh, by September with a big ramp up by April. 
So that is happening. And then, you know, it becomes how, how fair are these negotiations? How, you know, are, are, why is it that Canada is, is at the mercy of, of others? And that's, that has to change. And this is lessons for us to learn going forward. But, um, they make no mistake. We, we, we are feeling hurt, uh, I guess emotionally by not having what we need, but we're feeling hurt physically, right? There's a health issue. And we need to, we need to get these, these, these vaccinations in the arms of those that need it most, especially in the front line. Well, it, you know, it's also an economic issue, John, because the slower we are to get our, our population vaccinated, the slower we are to reopen. So, uh, John, uh, switching now to the province. So, uh, Ontario is among a few provinces that is starting to reopen. The number of daily cases is going down, but it's still higher than the first wave is number one. And it's happening as we're seeing these really more contagious variants pop up and it's happening amid warnings from our top public health people that we are doing this too soon and courting disaster. What, what do you make of that? Well, and just also to agree, Libby, to your, your, your point just before the question, which was to say that, you know, the economy in any recovery absolutely starts with, with, uh, you know, the, uh, the health and, and, and uh, the well-being of, of Canadians, um, given, the, given the vaccines and all that stuff. So the, more, the quicker we can come back to some sort of a new normal and the quicker that all the provinces can, can release and, and relieve some of the restrictions and get businesses back to order, the better it is for our economy. So it is health first and the economy uh, will follow suit. And, and that's no different in, in Ontario, and especially because what we've seen with Premier Ford over the course of the pandemic was this balance that he's tried to always play, which was, you know, listening to his healthcare professionals uh, saying that, you know, we've got to shut down, we've got to close, uh, and also listening, uh, and also instinctively, because he's a small businessman himself, uh, you know, wanting to make sure that as much as we can, and, and as much as he could, to keep businesses and some businesses going, while still trying to keep the health of, of Ontarians first and foremost. So we saw that balance that he did for, for the, the better part of the, 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 the pandemic, especially after the first initial lockdown. Yeah, I'm not um, sure. And- there are a lot of people who would argue with that balance, keeping big box stores open uh, for business and, and really disadvantaging our own small businesses here. Well, yeah, and I think, though, maybe there's an argument to be made about that, right? About the supply chain, and you can't shut down every sort of box store because, of course, a lot Market. of supplies that we get um, are, are are needed through the box box stores, and but limiting how many people can go into them, and limiting the fact that you know let's keep the box stores purchases only to essential services. That's a different debate. I get that, but you got to keep the supply chain going because you can't just shut everything down and then open it up in, in short order. But but again, just to your point about Ontario. Um, I, I think that you know the numbers are going down, and that's that's encouraging. Not nearly as as we as you've seen them before, but I do think though that having going back to the color codes and the in the regions that are least at risk in some cases uh, is smart. But I also think that he's also given himself the ability and, and the group the ability that if the numbers go up, that he can shut that back down in quick order. And I think that's what's needed. So monitoring it, seeing how this goes over the next little while, making sure that at the same time vaccines are. Being being, are being uh, out there and, and jabs are being put in arms, I think it all sort of are going are gonna to make for, uh, hopefully, a good next couple of months. Uh, okay. Um, uh, let me give the numbers out again. People, be patient. I will get to your calls. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And Karen, uh, how does this reopening plan, uh, is it, does it work for you? Well, I mean, we're in Toronto, so we don't actually have any clarity on when we can reopen. So, Isn't <laughs> you know, it the it's 22nd? But it, it doesn't affect me one way or the other at this point. Um, you know, but I will, I will say that, um, you know, it, it, the opening, closing, opening, closing, opening, closing is excruciating for a small business or a business, a medium-sized business like myself, because I can't retain staff. It's hard to schedule. I don't know when I'm calling people back for how long. And so it really is difficult. Um, I, and I understand the premier's, uh, you know, when he says, listen, if I have to shut down again, I'll shut down. But for a small business that is just trying to hang on and figure out, okay, how do I, how do I actually reopen the, the constant threat of being closed again is, is it makes it extremely difficult to think about reopening in, in any kind of positive way. 
And so, you know, part of the strategy, again, needs to include, you know, what does public health need to be able to, to trace and do contact tracing? How do we better use rapid t- testing so that we can control outbreaks before they happen? Where are they happening? Because the 500 cases in Toronto today, I don't know where they are. And, you know, how, how do we, but, but someone does. And so h- how do we get better information to use to more effectively be able to combat the spread of the virus? And, you know, and then it begs the question, you know, does shutting down small retail on Young Street, you know, what is that contribution to the spread of COVID? And, and you know, the answer that we got at the beginning of this was very, very low. In fact, lower than international travel. And yet, you know, in spite of all the announcements about the hotel stays and all that, it's still occurring. And there's still, we don't understand what's happening with respect to travelers coming in. So it's, it's all of those pieces that, you know, great announcements little follow-through, on the ground, you don't know what to do. That's what starts to erode the public trust. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. It's a moving target for sure. Let's hear from Keith in Selkirk. Hello, Keith. Hi, how are you today? Fine, how are you? Not bad, thank you. Um, I just have a question. Um, I'm a little puzzled how we're basically told to stay home. And... um, yeah, with this whole COVID thing, our professional athletes are allowed to travel all over the world and play games without masks on. And um, they talk about the big box stores, but what's the difference? Um, and I'm going to throw that to the panel, Keith. I think that uh, that's what Karen was just saying. You know, it is the inconsistencies in the rules, that's what makes people lose confidence, I think. And I think you ask some very good questions. Thanks, Keith. Yeah, yeah and I would, I would say, though, and, and just, uh, just to, to respond, I think uh, on the sports uh, side of it, um, I do understand and, and, and get the anxiety with respect to the box stores, but, you know, they're, they're, they are under a st- specific and strict um, uh, bubble requirements and, and each province in order for them to allow them to be playing in, in the respective jurisdictions, be it if it's hockey in Ontario, uh, Quebec and others, uh, there's, there's bubbles. They've got private planes that they, that they travel in. Uh, and they're secluded in within the bubble, so they can't even see their families when they're when they're actually in the location. So they've gone through a number of steps to ensure, uh, and they're tested on a regular basis as well. So there is there is strict guidelines uh, for the sports, but even then, and we're also seeing very low cases of positive positive uh, coronavirus uh, cases in sports. But we are seeing some of them, and when they do, the team is not allowed to play. So there is some precautions there. Well, yeah, and so I mean, I think that they're letting teams play because uh, because of all the people going nuts at home uh, yeah. with nothing to do. At least they can watch some sports, but um, you know, and and they do shut it down. But it, it's just a feeling that that uh, and and you know, I think a lot of it is probably uh, unintended consequences. It's just this unequal application. I mean, yesterday, not yesterday, last week, the government shut down flights to March break destinations. But you can just, the Americans have no problem flying in and out of here. And with one stopover, you can be wherever you want to be. So what does that mean? We just had 1,500 layoffs from uh, Air Canada just before we went to air. So the measure ends up disadvantaging our uh, own people. Charles? Yeah, I mean, Keith brings up a good point, and, and this lack of consistency across the country is is also evident. I mean, New Brunswick is opening up restaurants. They're engaging more. They have lower cases, mind you, and that's as a result of some precautions they took initially. And I guess we can go back and consider maybe we should have done things more stringently early on so that we would possibly avoid some of what we have. But for the economic recovery to occur, Keith, we need to start enabling some of these uh, professional athletes and others to do what they do to entertain us and, and to ensure that the economy starts to come back. And the biggest issue for that recovery, and I, I think Karen made mention of it, is this notion of uncertainty, the un- inability to properly plan. I mean, these small businesses have risk already, but when they have this added risk of political uncertainty and and somewhat interference is really difficult for them. And and that is from all levels of government, right? We got the city making taking action, we got the province taking action, we got the federal government, and they need to have a coordinated effort to to enable us to succeed 
But that effort is different in Ontario than it is in New Brunswick, for example. And yet New Brunswick is having a, a better recovery. Well, yeah, I talked to some friends uh, in Halifax on the weekend, and they also, they they basically don't have COVID. Uh, you know, the first time I called, they didn't answer. And, you know, here, if, if I call a friend and they don't answer, they might be on a walk or doing some exercises. That's the only possible reason. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. she said, well, well, we had some friends over. It's like, what? You had some friends <laughs> over? Well, only two. People are still careful. Uh, but yeah, and and she said, and two weeks ago, we went out to eat. So it's, it you know. So what is that like? <laughs> well, exactly. And, you know, they had that Atlantic yeah. bubble and it was a pain when it was going on. But but look at yeah. them now. Yeah. Of course, they get that wonderful weather. I know, still don't envy them. <laughs> Let's take a call from Massimo in Toronto. Hello, Massimo. Yes, hello, how are you? Uh, I just wanted to comment on the, uh, the lady that spoke before. I own two restaurants in the city, one in Young Street and one in Etobicoke. And I wanted to agree with the lady that how difficult it is to reopen and close and reopen and close. A lot of our staff left completely the business. So we don't know who's coming back and who's not. That's one thing. Second thing is, when they start opening last year, when the first uh, lockdown, they announced it a week before the Toronto's opening. We couldn't even make it in time. We had to work four days straight to reopen the business, day and night, to make sure that we have enough staff, that we make our ordering, that we do the whole process for the reopening. It's extremely hard and excruciating, the fact of opening and closing. It's not a switch that you can turn on and off. Anytime you want. They don't give us enough time for the opening. They don't tell us what's the procedures. They, they, they're not clear on any of the procedures that has to be done. And it's extremely excruciating for the business that we, we, we deal with, especially restaurants. Well, I, I mean, I, half of my staff completely changed career right now. They're not even coming back. I hear Massimo, um, have you been able to get by with the pivoting to takeout? Is that working for you at all? Uh, our business, our restaurant is mostly dining in. This is the most experienced, it's mostly intimate restaurants. Our business then take out is like 15% of the business that we do. I mean, we're, we're going by with the help that they're given. I'm not saying no, but for how long? <laughs> that's that's the yeah. question. How long we can go on? Yeah, I, I, and then, I, and when I they hear opened you. last year, sorry. Go ahead. Please go ahead. When they opened last year, they opened, for example, I have an Etobicoke and Oakville, which is like 10 minutes drive. They opened Oakville where everybody was going there and Etobicoke, which is five minutes, they, they opened two weeks later. Everybody was still going outside of the city to eat. Mm-hmm. And the city was locked down. <clears throat> which Massimo, I'm, a, I'm in Etobicoke, so if you tell me your restaurant, I'll come and take out and give you some business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Massimo, you may as well give yourself us, a plug. To, like, let us ahead of time. What are the procedures? They give us a few weeks at least, or three weeks, to organize the, the business and and see who from the staff has come. I'm, more, I'm working with minimum staff right now. I have 70% of my staff is on, 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 on welfare, whatever it is that they're paying. And when they're coming back, we don't know if they're coming back or not. Uh, Massimo, what are your restaurants? Give yourself a plug. Uh, I, I'm at La Vecchia Restaurant, uh, oh. one on Young Street, 2405, and Utobico 90 Marine Parade. Okay, oh I live right near the Young Street one, and uh, John can go to the Etobicoke one. Okay, yeah. you've got like, two customers. Just they gotta give us a heads up because it's not a switch that he can turn on off and on all the time. There is there's procedures that we have to go through. <clears throat> Massimo, I've already used your restaurant a couple of times. I'm ten minutes away from your restaurant. I'll be happy to. I'll be happy to. I mean, we appreciate the support of all our customers. Yeah, but we gotta understand our position, and it's very difficult for us right now as it is to maintain the business. And when they reopen, when you're open in May or June, which is it's a, bu- a busy season, everybody's anxious to go out, and you haven't ran the restaurant for almost five months, it's very mm-hmm. difficult to go back yep. into the rhythm. Yep. Yeah. Massimo, very thank, difficult. You, thank you so much for sharing your story, you. and all the best to you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. Yeah, well... Um, that's the way it is. We we only have a few minutes left. Should we uh, should we talk about Donald Trump, John? <laughs> well, um, I, I, you know the fact that we're even mentioning his name now, given the fact that we're already in February and a month long. But obviously, his uh, the, the the impeachment trial starts today in the Senate. I think they've truncated it to uh, 
to a week or two, which is probably good news for everybody just to kind of get it done and over with and then move on. Um, so we'll see what, what happens. But, um, you know, I, I just think that we should just focus on, on what's going to be happening in the U.S. for the next four years. Uh, Karen? Yeah, I, you know, I think that, you know, I understand the argument he's not president anymore. It would be, um, you know, a, a kind of a new precedent if they were to impeach a man who's no longer in office. But I still think that it it's worth, they have to go through this process. And my hope is that they do impeach him, uh, at the very least, so that he can't run again. Um, but, you know, to, to, to certainly take a stand around the principles of the Constitution, which are worth defending. And Charles? Yeah, I, listen, no matter who you are, what position you hold, you're the president, you're the prime minister, you have to be accountable for your actions, and uh, it's appropriate uh, that we don't allow such a thing to occur again, and we can't allow that to pass. So I think it's appropriate. I, I kind of miss his tweets and the social media stuff, but hey, at the same time, he's <laughs> oh, not getting any anger. You're a god for punishment, I guess, Charles. Okay. I was, I was. <laughs> okay, well, uh, yeah. All quiet on that front. Uh, thank you so much to our strategy panel. We'll talk again next week. Thank you, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco, and Charles Souza. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Okay. Thanks. Have a good afternoon. Okay. Um, I see a caller calling about our next segment. So, uh, Kelly in Toronto, hang on. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about those accusations of queue jumping at Villa Leonardo Gambin. Uh, we'll have that when we return on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As we have been reporting since the weekend, Villa Leonardo Gambin, a Vaughn nursing home, is at the center of alleged COVID-19 vaccine queue jumping. A nurse there has filed a grievance stating that she was ordered to vaccinate non-frontline staff and family members of board members and to falsify the paperwork afterwards by designating them as frontline workers. And apparently, this slays me, frankly, she was even offered the opportunity to vaccinate her own family members. Now, the home says they merely scrambled to make sure that no doses went to waste when they had some extra. But, uh, you know, we're going to take a closer look at that. It, it doesn't really add up. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to welcome Ann Waller, the local president and business manager at Leuna Local 3000, which represents that nurse. Hello, Anne. Thank you so much for being with us. Hello, Libby. Thank you very much for having me. So what was your reaction when you heard this from one of your members? Uh, I was uh, quite frankly in shock. Um, I was angry that it had been allowed to happen. Um, I was concerned uh, not only for our member, but certainly for the um, the residents and the other staff uh, that work at Villa Leonardo Gambine because it was clear that these uh, individuals that are not either frontline staff or essential caregivers were allowed into a facility that was an outbreak, um, potentially infecting them as well. Um, so, yeah, I was just generally shocked and concerned all around. Okay. I mean, there, there are, you know, other, uh, uh, other institutions like hospitals, uh, the same thing has happened. And they said, hey, we just ended up with an open vial, extra doses. So we got it into the arms of whoever we could get in there. But when you look at this particular instance, you're saying that it was at least 15 doses, that uh, there's an allegation that a doctor, you know, left with five doses, uh, presumably for personal use. Uh, and, you know, you've got to wonder, how could you get hold of those family members so quickly in what uh, a matter of an hour or so uh, where the where the doses could go uh, bad? Exactly. Um, also, the allegation that, uh, that they were using leftover doses, the Moderna vial 
uh, holds 10 vaccines, 10 doses. Um, at the end of the day, there were seven doses left in one of the, in one of the vials. Um, the nurse, uh, dispensed those doses. However, after she left, an additional four doses were dispensed. Uh, so, which we didn't, she, she found from paperwork the following morning. So the, the assertion that they were using leftover vaccine before it went to waste certainly wouldn't fly, in my opinion, uh, with respect to the additional doses that were given uh, after the nurse left. And, and the, sorry, go I ahead. Believe, uh, I believe the statement was that 21 doses of the vaccine uh, were provided to uh, non-essential caregivers, frontline staff, or um, residents. I thought that every home or facility is supposed to have a plan uh, about what to do if there are extra doses when you open a vial and, and finish with everyone who is supposed to get it. So we learned following um, uh, the story being released that uh, the Ministry of Health, the, the intention was that a vial wasn't supposed to be unsealed until a number of the exact number of people that would get doses from that vial were available to take it. It's unclear whether or not that protocol was in place at the time that this occurred or it was put in place, you know, after the story broke. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, um, there, and from speaking to the nurse personally, there doesn't appear to have been that protocol in place or really um, very strict guidelines in place at the time that the first vaccine clinic occurred. The second vaccine clinic occurred this past Sunday and it was supervised by public health. And I, uh, I understand that the, uh, the guidelines were, were quite strictly enforced on uh, who was receiving the vaccine and how it was being recorded. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, what they were doing was okay, then why would they ask the nurse to falsify the records? Because clearly it wasn't okay. Um, and, you know, again, in speaking to the nurse, the individuals that were vaccinated uh, certainly didn't even appear to fall within the high-risk categories. And that's one of the things that, that creates so much anger. You know, my own mom is 87 and can't get a vaccine, yet yeah. we have 20, 30, 40-year-olds year jumping the queue to get vaccines because they happen to know somebody. Do you have any uh, evidence that this was all sort of planned in advance? Um, I, I would... Planned in advance is, is a bit of a stretch, um, but, you know, being able to have... 10 or 11 people show up within an hour and a half's notice. Um, you have to wonder, you know, how everyone was assembled so quickly. Now, obviously we're in lockdown, so you'd assume people were at home, but, um, but a short answer to your question is planned in advance. Uh, that would be a, a difficult stretch for us as a union. Now that the public health is investigating it and they may be able to, to determine that better than, than we can through the grievance process. So public health is investigating. Uh, those people who got those first doses, presumably, are, are they getting second doses? To the best of my knowledge, um, the individuals that got, that got doses in the first clinic, uh, we don't have any knowledge of them receiving doses in the second clinic. Again, the second clinic was this past Sunday. And it was run by public health, so we don't have those records. We can't identify who was vaccinated because it would because we just don't have access to those records. But uh, um, the nurse that uh, that administered the original vaccines did not administer the vaccines to that group in the second round. Okay. Uh, and speaking of that nurse, I mean, I've got to give her a shout out for her courage and her, her uh, integrity. And I, I certainly, is she worried about, you know, reprisals or anything like that? Well, I, we absolutely have to applaud her for coming forward. I believe that this is happening uh, in far more facilities than we are 
aware of because employees are concerned about reprisal. They're concerned about losing their jobs. They're they're extremely concerned, so they're not coming forward. Um, so we absolutely applaud her for coming forward. And, um, uh, of course, she's concerned, but she is still working, and the union will do absolutely everything to protect her in her job and also to protect her with respect to um, you know her her license, which was put in jeopardy by the directive given by the home. Uh, and finally, uh, what will happen? Uh, what happens next with this? Well, my uh, as far as the nurse goes, or what's happening with respect to the vaccines, is public right, health the, is the, now supervising. Yeah, the investigation. Ahead. I mean, it, it, are there consequences possible for this? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so public health is, is doing an investigation, and there are consequences. They could be fined, the license could be revoked. Um, and also, uh, my understanding is that public health also reported the removal of the vaccine to York Regional Police, and that's under investigation as well. Okay, well, uh, please keep us updated on all of that. That's really important. Ann Waller from Leuna Local 3000, thank you so much for that. Thank you, Libby. Okay. Uh, And, you know, Kelly has been waiting very patiently. Kelly, I'm kind of out of time, but please go ahead for 20 seconds or so. Thank you very much. I I think uh, that this head of this nursing home, that this, this should be fired and nothing left. This, if you just give them a slap on the hand, everybody will do it. If they see the message is this kind of activity leads to firing, they'll think twice about it. Because this is sickening what has happened. And not that I want to offend anybody's family members, but who are they? If I said to my brother, come forward, he'd say, no, I'm in my 50s. I'll wait for that age category. Uh, I understand the way you feel. Kelly, thank you for that. Okay, uh, we are a little behind schedule here. So we're taking a quick break. And when we come back... uh, Drunk driver, convicted drunk driver Marco Muzo is uh, going before parole board today to talk about full parole. We will talk about that on the other side of the break. Let me give you the numbers if you have an opinion. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. He is the most notorious drunk driver in the country, and today Marco Muzo is up for full parole. He was responsible for the 2015 Vaughan, Ontario crash that devastated the Neville Lake family, killing nine-year-old Daniel Neville Lake, five-year-old Harrison Neville Lake, and two-year-old Millie Neville Lake, as well as their 65-year-old grandfather, Gary Neville, their 64-year-old grandmother and 91-year-old great-grandmother were also seriously injured. Musso sped through a stop sign in his Jeep Cherokee and smashed into the family's minivan. He was driving home from the airport after celebrating his bachelor party in Miami, and he was about three times the legal limit for alcohol. He was sentenced to 10 years. And in 2016, he got uh, in 2016, excuse me, and he was granted day parole in April of 2020. So does he deserve full parole now? Let us go to criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind and Andrew House, who is a lawyer with Faxkin Martineau de Moulin, and who is a former chief of staff to the Minister of Public Safety. Uh, hello, and thanks so much for being with us. Great to be on with you, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Okay, let us begin with Ari. So uh, a lot of people just shake their heads when they see this. He was sentenced to 10 years, but 10 years isn't 10 years. He's been on day parole, which uh, means that he has to go back to a halfway house, so he's not in jail. And uh, now he he might get full parole. 
Libby, there's two parts to the question there, and I think there's a third part that Canadians should be aware of, and you just flagged, and you and I have talked about it many times, which is 10 years in Canada doesn't mean 10 years. Nine years doesn't mean nine years. It tends to mean, unless there's some very, very significant malfeasance in the jail, by that I mean fighting in jail, new charges, people tend to get parole at around the one-third market, their earliest eligibility, sometimes a few months before that. So a lot of Canadians would be don't even know that that's the way the system works. Now, morally, whether he should get parole or not depends on people's personal morals. But from a parole board standpoint, what the parole board is dealing with in black letter law or policy today is the concern about public safety. Is he a risk to public safety? His notoriety, uh, quite frankly, the input of Miss Neville Lake, the tragic heart-stopping story of Miss Neville Lake, who not only lost her three children, their grandfather, two others terribly injured by Muzzo getting off a private plane, getting into his Range Rover, being so drunk that he urinated himself. By the parole board's own standards, Libby, this man should legally be given full parole today. And in in my view, Libby, as unpopular as it is, he should have been released on full parole a long time ago, he simply, because of his notoriety and giving some very, very stupid answers, I don't know why he gave them, but he did, at his first day parole hearing years ago, that is the only reason we're having this discussion today, rather than about a year ago. Uh, Andrew House, uh, do you agree? Uh, is is uh, Marco Musso actually being uh, treated in a harsher way than someone else doing the same thing would be? So, I mean, these are very difficult decisions that a parole board faces. But one element of this that really bothers me is is his past history. Uh, in criminal law, I believe in second chances. I don't believe in third chances. He had a history of speeding and other driving offenses. And, and then he engaged in this horrific crime of drunk driving that, that took the lives of four people. Um, there is a system-wide value in denouncing this this conduct. And that's why a sentence of 10 years was imposed. Um, I, I think Ari is right that people don't understand the parole system. I, I think that, that there is a repeated sense uh, of disappointment and disillusionment when, when on the one hand, people hear a sentence handed down and, and it's X number of years, and then they hear the person's out on parole uh, at a significantly less period of time. That, that does shake, I think, people's belief uh, in the administration of justice. And that's a real problem. It's something I'd love to see governments deal with in terms of some form of truth in sentencing. Uh, notoriety, uh, sure, it, it, it plays in. But I have to say, you know, and Ari mentioned this, the, the uh, answers given uh, were really poor at his first hearing. And, and, and the evaluation was that he had sabotaged his own rehabilitation by, and this is a quote, severely underestimating his problems with alcohol. Well, how do you find yourself in a place where you can't judge the level of, of your addictions and their impacts on other people after you've been convicted uh, in the deaths of four people? In other words, my fear is that, that as they say, the past conduct is the best predictor of future conduct, and that this is a guy who maybe can't change his ways. And that's what gives me a uh, great pause uh, about public safety in the future. Uh, how much of the anger towards him? He comes from an extremely wealthy family. Uh, and as you said, he was in a private plane. I mean, you've got to wonder, he was in, he's coming off a private plane. He, what, he, co- he couldn't take a, an Uber or a limo? I mean, it just, it boggles the mind. But Ari, how much do you think uh, of the, uh, the notoriety is, is, you know, the fact that he's an extremely wealthy, entitled person? Ari? Libby, you cannot extricate that from the discussion. Anybody telling the truth or being honest about this, he is straight from central casting as the perfect public enemy number one. And let me explain why that matters. He is Caucasian. He is wealthy. He's daddy's billionaire son. As you mentioned, Libby, he gets off his private jet. He could have had 10 limo drivers 
drive him where he wanted to go compared to most Canadians who right now are struggling to pay for a taxi or an Uber, their mortgage or their rent. So he is the perfect enemy of the people. Part of the problem of this story, Libby, and you and I talked about this years ago, part of the problem of the story is that he is the perfect boogeyman for this because he had the misfortune to do what he did but go through the wrong intersection. Canadians would be remiss all across this country, and this is why I have deep sympathy for Mothers Against Drunk Driving and York Regional Police, that even before COVID, when Mr. Muzzo was in court on certain days, Libby, and this was national news across Canada, there were massive numbers of drinking and driving arrests in York Region. Now, why does that matter? Because for all of the attention we put on to Mr. Muzzo, his notoriety, his wealth, it's easy to point the finger at him. There are thousands of Canadians, likely pre-COVID, everybody should be home currently, that drive drunk two or three times over the legal limit if they get caught, which is extremely rare, Libby, extremely statistically unlikely to be caught. They, if they're caught, get a $1,200 fine or they make it home. So I'm hoping that some of the light of this and Mr. Muzzo, when this is all done, will not disappear gently into that good night the way so many people convicted of things do, but he could actually have an important voice to go across the country. If he's paid to speak, all of that money goes to the Neville Lake family and hopefully encourage people on a going forward basis to not put themselves in a position to be the next Marco Muzzo. Okay, I'm going to give the numbers out. Audience, we have a few minutes left. Uh, if you have an opinion on this, Marco Muzzo, the convicted drunk driver, uh, up for full parole. Should he get it? Should he not get it? 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And Andrew House, I, I would like to touch on something that, you know, sometimes I find puzzling in, in all kinds of cases that involve parole. And I'm thinking of people who are also suspected terror suspects. And that is, you know, what do you see? What's the capacity of these parole boards to figure out this sincerity. I mean, you know, um, Muzzo has now said he will take full responsibility. He's apologized. He's recognized that he's ruined the lives of, of the surviving Neville Lake family. So a parole board can, can hear, you know, you said he was really stupid in what he said the first time, but now he's saying the right things and, and other um, people who are up for parole say the right things. So how do you assess the capacity of a parole board to to figure out if it's the real deal? Well, I think famously, um, human beings, uh, they say, are no better at judging, you know, truth from fiction than than, uh, than than dumb chance or straight luck. You know, it's sort of 50-50. There's no special or magical power for judging someone's verbal uh, sincerity as you see them in a hearing. I think it's even more difficult when the hearing is remote. It's, I was um, just about to say that. You bet. Uh, what you have is the person's uh, dedication as measured by the correctional service in following the correctional plan. You know, have they, uh, have they, have they shown remorse? Have they taken responsibility? Uh, these things are often measured in court at sentencing, but then, then you see evidence of that sincerity in their willingness to follow uh, the plan within the, the prison institution seeking help for things like anger management, uh, literacy, I'm speaking generally here, but but then to turn specific, um, you know, taking counseling for addictions, that didn't appear to happen in a sincere way uh, with this individual uh, in the lead up to his first parole hearing. Well, that plays heavily in the minds of parole board members, and it's, it's one of the ways that they judge uh, future prospects. But there is, of course, the ability to revoke parole. And, and this isn't, in my view, done nearly enough. Uh, when someone doesn't follow the conditions set out for them by the board, uh, you face a suspension hearing, and following that suspension hearing, the board must revisit whether parole was, in fact, a good idea, and they can allow parole to continue, or they can revoke parole. And, uh, you know, this is a situation where if this individual says, as he has, I'm never going to drink again, you know, make that a condition. Go ahead and make it a condition for life. And if he can't live up to it, revoke. 
that will sound harsh to some people, but you know, this guy has an opportunity to make in some small way a, a step towards changing his ways and, and, and maybe setting an example for others some, in some small way. Well, I would make that stick. I would make the conditions very strong. I would monitor those conditions until his, his warrant expiry date. After that date, the board has no more jurisdiction. So that would be the, the end of the 10-year period. But in that period, uh, make his commitments real and make them stick and allow that to be an example not only to him but to others. Okay, uh, let's uh, take a quick call from Rick in Guelph. Hi, Rick. Hi, Leslie. I'd like to ask, what was he, uh, Marco Muzzo, charged with? What was he convicted of? Uh, he well, he was convicted of uh, he was convicted of drunk driving. But um, drunk driving. what do you think he should still be in prison? Exactly. I think he should have been charged with vehicular homicide and four counts, and he should still be in prison. He had good lawyers, expensive lawyers, I would bet, that uh, got the charges reduced, and, and uh, so now he's walking the streets. He should still be in prison. Okay there, Rick. Thanks for that. Let's uh, also get to Clay very quickly. We're running out of time. Hi, Clay. Uh, 20 seconds. What do you think? He should have been prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And I'll say this. I feel very strongly about it. Anybody that climbs behind the wheel and is impaired and kills somebody should be charged with premeditated murder, period. Cut and dried. That's it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Okay, Clay, thank you for that. Um, so I have to say we're going to probably pick this up again free-for-all Friday, but before we wrap up, I'm going to give the last word to our guests. Please, 20 seconds or so each, starting with Ari. Uh, Libby, in 20 seconds, for people who are concerned about this, be concerned about sentencing, be concerned about parole, as Andrew mentioned as well. He called the truth in sentencing, which is a well-known phrase in our business, but from a parole standpoint... So long as he's never driving again, he is not a risk to public safety. But also, Libby, as I said, in five seconds, this should not just be a story about Marco Muzzo. This should be about the number of Canadians still drinking and driving. Okay, and Andrew, 20 seconds. Look, I agree. Um, this is this is bigger than any one person, uh, but it affects so many Canadians. There are technological solutions. I think the automotive industry is bringing us to a place where you know, the car knows a lot about the driver, and there has to be a way of measuring if a person is so impaired that they shouldn't be operating. It sounds like this individual was that impaired, uh, and I, I, I leave that to the automotive companies to figure out. But there's an opportunity there to, to prevent harm before it happens rather than focusing on punishment. Okay. Um, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Ari Goldkind and Andrew House. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.